0: Father, we do worship You three in one, the eternal Godhead, You, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, Lord, all the roles that You as a triune God have taken to save us for Your own namesake. And so we worship You for it, we praise You for it, and may that desire to worship and praise You and glorify Your Son May it be evident in the way, not just in the way we sing, but in the way in which we study Your Word today. Teach us Your truth. Call us to sanctification, Lord, especially those who don't know You. Call them to respond to Jesus Christ in faith, to recognize Him for who He is, truly the Son of God, the divine man. And Lord, may they turn to Him in faith, trusting who He is, what He's accomplished on the cross, believing in His resurrection, so that they too may join Him for eternity. We need Your strength. We need Your Spirit's empowerment to do this in our lives, and so we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what a glorious day it is to gather with one another and study. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Looking at the very end of chapter 22, in this chapter we have noted there is a back and forth between the religious leaders and Jesus there on the Temple Mount in Holy Week. As we follow these interactions, we've noticed that, A, the leaders have no ability to actually trap or humiliate Jesus, much less to respond to His brilliant and authoritative responses. And, B, in these answers, we find that Jesus is training those around Him, His disciples and others who would follow Him, even us today. In today's text, we know that it is Jesus who asks the question. Verse 3 questions, it was the Pharisees and or Sadducees who came challenging Jesus, and he always had the perfect answer. He put them in their place. He gives us magnificent instruction. Now it's Jesus' turn. He asks them, and he does to them what they could never do to him. He confounds them. He humiliates them. He stumps them. Verse 46, and Noah was able to answer him a word, so they asked no more questions. I tell you, this is all part of Jesus' plan. Their only option now, if they want him dead, is to illegitimately arrest, try, and kill him, which is exactly what they do in ironic yet beautiful fulfillment of Scripture. After our text today is sort of icing on the cake, chapter 23, Jesus warns the people against these Pharisees primarily, but all these religious leaders. He warns the people of these wicked leaders. He issues seven woes or seven curses upon them. It's a call to repentance. And then he notes at the end of that chapter, very sadly, most Israel will follow them in that same curse. Chapter 24, to his followers, it's all about end times that his death will initiate. Chapter 25 is the application of those end times. Then in chapter 26 is the Lord table, the arrest in Gethsemane, the beginning of all of his false trials, all according to the plan God had laid out, the triune God had decided upon, covenanted upon from the beginning of, before the beginning of time. Well, let's read this passage today. Follow along as I read aloud. Matthew 22, beginning in 41. No one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions this is the word of god if you've been around christianity very long you have probably come across you've read it or you've heard this statement regarding jesus identity that we must choose between the following options jesus is either liar lunatic or lord have you heard this a lot of you've heard this before most people attribute this to c.s lewis in mere christianity i'll read what he says in a moment but it actually came before c.s lewis actually an old scottish preacher wrote about it in the early 1800s he called it the the trilemma jesus claims to be god and that prevents us that precludes us ever saying he's a good teacher jesus received worship good teachers don't claim to be god cult leaders do Strange people do, delusional people do, not good teachers. Jesus claimed to be God, so then we're left with either Jesus could have been a lunatic, he could have been delusional, or Jesus was a fraud, he was a deceiver, and really not just any kind of deceiver, but a satanic, a demonic deceiver, because he's telling people he's God when he's not. Or the last option, he is indeed who he said he was, that he he is the Lord God. There is another option that sometimes people point out says Jesus maybe was a legend meaning he's a myth all these stories we have in the bible are myths all these saying it's all made up but that allegation really has to do with the veracity of scripture i've preached on this it's not the subject of the passage today it's important but not pertinent for what we see today what is pertinent what is relevant to our passage today is that you must choose what you believe about jesus his claim today is that he is messiah god He is the Messiah, and therefore he is God. So you have to choose. Is he a lunatic, a satanic fraud, or is he indeed, whom he says he was, God? Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. I told you I'd read this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You ever hear that? 70 years ago he's writing this, This so it happens all the time today. Lewis says, this is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left it open to that. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, "Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God." Now this notion. Either he's lunatic, liar, or Lord. This leaves us with a dangling question, and really it's the question that Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Is he Messiah? Is he God? And Jesus actually ends his discussion here in a, in a dangling way. He doesn't go on to explain much. He, he says a few things, and, and basically there's that question. I, I think it's just the air the was pregnant with this idea. Who is Jesus? I think he wanted the crowd to answer that, not just out loud, but, but in their hearts. Who do I say Jesus is? Who do I believe the Messiah is? Jesus. If David calls the Messiah Lord, how is he his son? And there's no more discussion after that. It sort of hangs in the air for all people to sort of answer on their own, in their own heart. How will you identify the Messiah? And that's really the question for all of us as we come to this passage okay i'm going to give you a little outline this outline is a, a pretty uh, generic outline you can actually use this outline in a lot of parts of the bible uh, but i think it applies really well here what we ha- here have is two parts we have revelation and response here's the revelation he gives us truth he gives us scripture and then the question really dangling is how will you respond to the revelation that god has given so Let's look at each one of these things. We'll spend most of our time on Revelation because Jesus doesn't... Again, he sort of leaves the answer dangling. But let's look at each one of these. Number one, Revelation. This time it's Jesus who asks the questions. The first question of verse 42, whose son is the Messiah, Christ... uh, By the way, the word Christ is simply the word in the Greek for Messiah, the anointed one. They correctly respond, in a sense, David... The follow-up question is basically this, how is the Messiah merely David's son, since David calls him Lord? And Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, where David says, the Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, that's the Messiah. Those two questions, whose son is the Christ? And the follow-up question, how is the Christ merely an offspring of David? How is it, how can you say that the Messiah is simply another king like David was? All right, let's break this down. The whole notion of Messiah for the first century Jew, we've talked about this before, it filled them with hope, it filled them with desire, it filled them with longing. They had very great nationalistic pride as they as they thought about the Messiah. It was very patriotic to talk and to think, perhaps even sing about the Messiah. And as they discussed among themselves the Messiah, the the basic idea would be that he would come and save Israel. They thought of this, they thought like this, because the people like the Sadducees and the Pharisees paired the Bible's presentation of the Messiah down to simply a, a political or military Savior. He was just a Jewish hero, a man, another man, but a great man like David. He's a really good guy, probably a military genius, probably an administrative genius, probably a really good politician too, and and, and that's who the Messiah was, and that's merely who he was, according to the Pharisees and Sadducees of that day. So Jesus asked that first question, whose son is the Messiah? This question to the Pharisees, R.C. Sproul says, it's like asking a, a Ph.D. in theology a question even a kindergartner could answer. Everyone knew whose son the Messiah was. He's David's son. Everyone knew the concept of David and the Davidic covenant, especially if you're Jewish. You, you knew this. You grew up on this. You, you put your hope in this. The Sadducees and the Pharisees taught about this. It doesn't even matter what, what side of the, 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 the socio political spectrum you were, you knew the Messiah was David's son. It all stems from the Davidic covenant, which is prominent in their teaching. Uh, Davidic covenant is in Second Samuel chapter seven. Let me read to you verses twelve and thirteen, just to give you a taste. Everybody in Israel would be familiar with this idea. When your days are fulfilled, speaking God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your father, fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever everyone knew this everyone knew the messiah would one day come the offspring of david would come he would establish the kingdom they would dominate the earth it would be bigger and better more prominent than even david's everyone understood this everyone loved this theme it it took them in their memories in their history it took them back to arguably the best time ever as far as jews go during david and solomon's rule really if you think about it before, it wasn't that great. You had people, rebellious people, wandering, you know, getting, leaving Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, being rebellious at the time of judges. After the time of David and Solomon, you have a divided kingdom. You have all kinds of rebellion, all kinds of paganism. If you were to ask anybody, even today, what's the best time in Jewish history, probably nine out of ten people would say, well, it was the time of David and Solomon. This is when they had the, the king, David, who was a, a man after God's own heart, and, and, and things were peaceful. There really wasn't that much paganism. People were, were at peace with one another. The, the, the kingdom was growing and growing and growing. By the time you get to Solomon, the kingdom was at peace. And the wealth just rolled in, and, and there was so much wealth and so much prosperity that kings and queens from other nations, even the queen Sheba of Egypt, came to see the beautiful kingdom of Israel. This, in everybody's minds, is the peak, the pinnacle of Jewish history. And it was in that time that God came to David and made this covenant and promised this offspring that would be even greater, that would bring even greater dominance and prominence and power and wealth to Israel. This Messiah, this anointed one, would be exponentially greater than even David himself, or perhaps even David and Solomon combined even better Now, as time went on, you read the Old Testament, what you discover is that the Messiah is going to suffer. Even David hinted at this in the Psalms. You see it in Ezekiel, You see it in Jeremiah. You see it most clearly in Isaiah that even his own people would reject him. The Messiah would come as a servant and be rejected even by his own people. But all of that information about a suffering Messiah was glazed over, it was skipped. They wanted to focus on the stuff that sells they want to focus on the stuff that they like to talk about and people like to hear and that was the dominance the prominence and national pride the messiah who would come and sit on a throne and dominate that's what everyone likes to hear about so that's what they focused on they had hope not in a messiah who would bring about a spiritual kingdom or anything about atonement or faith or sacrifice they only talked about a messiah who would come with great political might, a Messiah that had little do with spiritual realities and everything to do with the physical realities of the Jewish kingdom. Now, by the time Jesus came, the actual Messiah, those desires for a political and military Messiah had grown to a fever pitch. We know this because it continued to grow after Jesus. Did you know this? It continued to grow and actually caused the people of Israel to to launch a number of revolts, so much so that eventually the Roman government came and basically snuffed them out. The Jews were expelled out of Israel. didn't come back until 1948. They were basically cast out of Israel. Yes, some of them stayed, but most of them had to leave Israel and flee into other parts of the world. Now, that was all because that that resilience, that desire was all based on this idea that we are going to have a Messiah that frees us from Roman rule not just by coming and making a deal with the Romans but by dominating the Romans, by dominating all the other nations. That's what their hope in the Messiah was all about. All the people, all the Israelites in Jesus' day longed for that kind of Messiah. Israel in that day was laughable. It'd be like saying that the island nation of Tonga will one day rule the earth. People looked at Israel, it was small, it was tiny, it was insignificant, they didn't even have a military. It was laughable to think of them as being any kind of national or international power. The people of Israel had no hope except for in the Messiah. And again, their idea of Messiah is that he would come in military and political might and free them and rule the earth." That is all the Messiah was to them. He was merely David's son. He was a man like them. They had totally divorced the idea of a Messiah from spiritual realities. He had nothing to do with their own personal salvation any kind of atonement, anything like that. He was merely a political, military hero. That's all they knew. That's all they hoped in. That's all they longed for. That's all they discussed. And that's all they sang about. And so everyone knew, perhaps even five-year-olds, that the Messiah was to be a descendant of King David. God had made that promise. God had made that covenant. And they believed it, or at least the bits that were positive for them. Jesus asked the question, whose son is Messiah? You can almost hear the Pharisees snickering. Oh, that's the question you're going to start with. That's easy. David's son. Five-year-olds know that. That's easy. But then Jesus pressed in and asked a much more difficult question. Verse 43. How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, do you follow the reasoning here? The Father does not call his son Lord. Jesus is asking, how is it that David, speaking of his descendant, the Messiah, how is it that he calls him Lord? Could it be, Pharisees, could it be that you all have missed the boat entirely when it comes to the identity of the Messiah? The answer is, of course, yes. Focusing only on those passages they liked in the Bible, ignoring the ones they didn't, they had a totally skewed version of the Messiah. Great warning today, isn't it? Had they correctly, biblically understood the identity of the Messiah, they would have confessed with Peter, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the divine Messiah. They ask this question, and it's an unsolvable riddle to them. Now, I want to point out a couple of things as we look at this. First is this. I want you to notice Jesus' view of Scripture. This is more of a digression, but I think it's important for us to point this out. Did you notice there Jesus said in verse 43, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, and he quotes Psalm 110. So Jesus didn't believe that. David was just speaking with poetic inspiration. Jesus didn't believe that David was just speaking in terms of of, of historical understanding or perhaps historical inspiration or, or even inspiration in terms of writing skill. Jesus believed that David was, as he wrote this down, he was inspired by the Spirit. These words were spirit inspired, or perhaps God breathed. David's words here are God's words. They come from the Spirit of God. And Jesus' appeal to them means that He Himself believed that this is God's Word and it is to be trusted. It is error-free. It is untainted. It is inspired. It doesn't contradict itself, therefore it's infallible. In other words, Jesus held to what is known today in theological circles as the verbal plenary view of inspiration, meaning every word and all the Scripture as a whole in its original language is God-breathed. It's true, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it is error-free. God used men, God used their language, God used their situation, their personality. And God miraculously spoke through them using their situations, using their language, using what's going on in their lives. He spoke through them perfectly, and His Word was recorded down in a perfect way, perfectly reflecting His will and His ways. And Jesus clearly agrees with this, and he agreed with and probably taught Peter what Peter would later say about the inspiration of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than what? If you read earlier, it's more fully confirmed than even eyewitness. They were talking about being eyewitnesses to the truth, but it's more fully confirmed the word of God. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp and shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. The word interpretation there, personal prophecy, personal inspiration. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I know, again, this is a digression, but I think it's a very important digression. I find it very helpful whenever I have intellectual questions, questions about creation or questions about the flow of history, their existence of miracles or demons or angels or the timeline that's presented in the Bible. We can always answer those questions, and there's different ways we can attack those with our minds and our intellects. But one way that I find truly encouraging is to look to Jesus and say, well, what did Jesus believe about these things? What did Jesus believe about Adam and Eve? What did Jesus believe about the flood? What did Jesus believe about these things? What did Jesus believe about Scripture? Well, He believed... That God spoke infallibly through his chosen men. Here it is, David. This is just one of those verses you need to put an asterisk by and put in your Bible out in the margin. Jesus believed in inspiration. And by inspiration, it's verbal, plenary inspiration. That means something to you. The truth is, Jesus' whole ministry rested on the truth of God's word. It rested on the veracity and reliability of Scripture. He taught it. He appealed to it. We learned when we studied the book of Mark, this was his habit. The first chapter of Mark says Jesus' habit early on was to go to the synagogues. And what did he do? Well, he did much what we do here. He opened a scroll and would read it and explain it and make application. Why? Because he believed in the truthfulness and the inspiration of Scripture. Ultimately, Jesus was a fulfillment of that very Scripture. You can't have the ministry of Jesus without it being a fulfillment. Scripture that is full of errors, a Scripture that's full of mistakes, a Scripture that's full of myths, Jesus' whole ministry collapses. No, Jesus believed, and I believe, and this church believes in an error-free, inspired Scripture, ultimately flowing from God Himself. That is the whole foundation of Jesus' ministry. And this is what Jesus is appealing to in our text an error-free inspired scripture. Well, what scripture is that? What verse is he pointing out? Well, he's pointing out Psalm 110, verse 1. He's just quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. In the New Testament, Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage of from the Old Testament. It's repeated multiple times in the New Testament. You see it here. You see it in Acts chapter 2. You see it in Hebrews 1. You see it alluded to directly in 1 Corinthians 15, again in Hebrews chapter 10. Not to mention the fact that this very story is recorded again in Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 20. This is an important passage for us to understand. David received this covenant. David understood that he would not be the Messiah, but he would be the covenant keeper, the covenant, the one to whom God made the covenant, and he would foreshadow the Messiah. He would vaguely resemble the Messiah. We know that David believed this because as he wrote his Psalms, He often writing about his own travails would foreshadow something that he knew was greater and things that he did not even face such as the the dividing of his garments by lots he he knew that this is not specifically true about him but he was a foreshadow of the messiah whom god had promised through him so there were times in david's life that he by the inspiration of the spirit knew god was using him to foreshadow the messiah and that's what psalm 10 psalm 110 is all about and there was not any disagreement about this at this passage psalm 110 is messianic the jews all agreed even the sadducees and pharisees two ends of the, the the religious or theological spectrum they agreed this is a messianic psalm the truth here ultimately was about the messiah it was not ultimately about david it was about the messiah there was no debate over this People interpreted it that way in Jesus' day, so much so that Jesus could use this, and no one even questioned that he's talking about that they knew this was messianic psalm. This is all about the Messiah. Well, what does this psalm say about the Messiah? Look back, if you've not already turned there, look back to Psalm 110. Flip back there, you'll need to see something with your own eyes. Turn back there to Psalm 110 in, in the Bible. Psalm, if you're new to the Bible, psalm, the book of Psalms is a collection of uh, these psalms or songs or poems. And they're found about in the middle of your Bible, so if you just kind of go to the middle of your Bible, you can find the book of Psalms and go to Psalm 110. In the Old Testament, there were, like there are in a lot of languages, there were different words for Lord. In the Hebrew language, the first and most sacred of those words is the word Yahweh. Now, the word Yahweh is not just a noun that you use generically for Lord or God that you can use to talk about other gods or other lords. This is actually the name of God. Now, this is the name that God gave Moses. It's most likely arose out of the phrase, I am, Yahweh. This name was so sacred that rabbis and scribes oftentimes shied away from even saying it out loud. Now, we know they did say it out loud, Sometimes people say, oh, they never said it out loud. They did say it out loud. They sang it, and they used it, and they wrote it and put it in songs. So we know that they did say it out loud, but they were very respectful of the word Yahweh because it was the name, the actual name that God gave of himself. This is not any other God. This is not to be applied to any other Lord or God. This is God, the God of Israel, the God of Moses. Sometimes you hear the word tetragrammaton, meaning the word of four letters. It's really, in the Hebrew, there's no vowels, so it's just Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Now, in your Bible, there in Psalm 10, I want you to see this. You're going to notice the first time you see Lord there, it is in small caps. Do you see that? And I know this is not news to some of you, maybe not news to a lot of you, but for some of you, I know this is brand new information. And you have to see this, especially for the point that Jesus is making. The word first lord there is in small caps that means that the original word behind that word lord is the word yahweh the translators of english translation some time ago decided we're gonna we're gonna show english readers that behind this word lord is not just the you know generic name for lord but it is the name of god it's yahweh so when you read the old testament and you see small caps lord you know that this is not just generic word lord this is Yahweh. This is the, the, the Hebrew word behind this is Yahweh. In fact, you can find there's one translation of the Bible out now called the Legacy Standard Bible. It's the update of the 1995 NASB, and they actually went back through and just put Yahweh, like the original Hebrew would have. The second word, Lord, there, you'll notice Psalm 110 is not like that. The first letter is capitalized, indicating it it's talking about a specific person but the rest of the word is lowercase just like you would expect so this is another word but it's again more a more generic word for lord and it simply means sovereign run it's the word adonai so psalm 110 verse 1 says something like this yahweh says to my sovereign one sit at my right hand are you with me now they wouldn't have seen it like we see it right we see it in the english in our new testament in matthew it's the same where the lord said to my lord it's kind of weird sounding in the original yahweh said to my sovereign one again this passage is without question about the messiah his garments his priestly role later on in the passage of melchizedek his role in judgment this is the messiah all the jews agreed beginning with david himself who wrote it so what is the reason here what is this message here the messiah is called sovereign one by the way In multiple psalms, you will find that Yahweh is called Adonai, Sovereign One. Psalm 8 is a good place to start, but it's all over the book of Psalms. The Messiah is called Sovereign One, just like God is called Sovereign One. The Messiah is given the same title as God. Second, the Messiah is a Sovereign One who sits in the place of total divine authority, God's right hand. Third, the Messiah, just in this single verse, has complete authority and victory over his enemies. Again, something that can only be said of God himself. No one was 100% victorious over all his enemies except for God. And finally, David called the Messiah, who is his offspring, Adonai, or my Sovereign One. The conclusion is this. The Messiah is not merely a man or merely the son of man he is that that's certainly true he is 100 percent man he's the offspring of david he is the son that is promised but also according to david and jesus here the promised messiah is god himself or said in a, a hebrew way the son of god he has all the rights all the sovereignty all the privileges he sits in the place of total authority at god's right hand so he's a different person yet he himself is also god Like C.S. Lewis, we read earlier, no matter how strange it may sound to our ears, no matter how weird it is, this is the only option for us. If we are to believe Scripture, this is the only option given to us, that Christ is the Son of God, meaning He is God. Again, this is not what the Pharisees taught. This is not what they even considered. They taught the Messiah was simply a man like David, only better, David on steroids, this is the better David. thought he'd become a military might. As Jesus is essentially saying to them, you realize, guys, you've missed the most important part. The Messiah is God, and you've missed that. You've totally missed it. And because he is divine, he's to be loved and worshipped and followed and feared. How did they respond? Verse 46, No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day anyone dared to ask him a question. In summary, they didn't know what to say. They're supposed to be experts in the Bible, and they've missed this point. This would be central. And they missed it. Why? Because they weren't going to the Scripture in submission to learn, to submit to, to obey, to proclaim the truth of, they went to the Scripture to get what they wanted. What they wanted was political freedom, and they found the Messiah. They found some verses. They cobbled together these things. They didn't take the the whole counsel of the Word of God. They cobbled together some verses and fashioned a Jesus that they would like, a Messiah that they would like. Boy, this sounds so familiar today, right? People do the same thing with Jesus. Now, this is the revelation. Jesus unveils who He really is. He repeats essentially what Peter had confessed on behalf of the other disciples, that He is divine. Well, Jesus just leaves this hanging here. But He wants people to respond. He wants them to repent and follow after Him and believe in the Messiah. So let's just spend the remaining couple moments And this idea of response number two, response: What should have happened? They stared at Jesus blankly. What should they have done when they were given this revelation that Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is indeed God? What should they have done? They should have fallen to their faces, right? They should have feared him. That it should have been shocked and stunned the reality that God incarnate stood before them. He should have. They should have instantly been humiliated of their sin and their brokenness and their unworthiness to stand before them, before him. Remember Isaiah, what happened when he saw God? Woe is me, for I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember what happened later on? John. John said in Revelation 1:17: When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, this gives us the first idea. If Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah is God, as Jesus shows us here from Scripture and claims to be, what should we do? First of all, we should worship. We should worship Him. We should worship Christ. I mentioned Psalm 2 in my introduction last week, how like the Pharisees, the rulers of the earth gather together against and conspire against God, and it says against God and His anointed. That is the word for Messiah. That's the word for Christ. What does it say later in Psalm 2? Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son, meaning love and do obeisance, respect, honor the Son. Worship the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you perish in your ways. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. We worship Him. We worship Him. I read an article this week by a guy named Gary Stillwell, He's an adjunct humanities professor at Florida State, if that impresses you. He started out the article by declaring, in essence, Jesus never said we should worship Him. The Gospels never claim He is God. This is a legend that was created much later using Greek philosophical concepts. It sounds like to me he's trying to justify not worshiping Christ, isn't it? Well, Gary, let's look. What does the New Testament say? What do the Gospels say about worshiping Christ? The very beginning, Matthew 2, 11, the Magi did what? The Magi bowed down and worshiped him. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples in the boat. What did they do? Matthew 14, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. By the way, these are Jews. These are men who had been taught from childhood there is only one God, and that's the God you should worship. So they understood, even in a very rudimentary way, they understood Son of God means God. He is God. He has all the rights. He should be worshiped as God. Matthew 21, we studied. People worship Jesus as He came into Bethany. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says... After Jesus was resurrected, the ladies saw Him, and they fell at His feet and worshiped Him. Thomas, he was looking for empirical evidence of the resurrection. When he saw it, he fell down worshiping Christ, and he said, My Lord and my God. He worshiped Jesus, the Messiah, as divine. The book of Revelation, what do we see over and over again? myriads upon myriads of people, myriads upon myriads of angels. And what are they doing? They are worshiping Jesus. What do we do with this truth? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. We worship Him. Second, we learn or study, you could say. Another thing we should do in response to Jesus The truth of Jesus' deity is to study it, learn its value, learn its importance, learn how it applies. Jesus' deity is why He could and can forgive sin. That's important for us to know, right? Jesus can forgive sin. Your sin can be forgiven. Jesus' deity is why He could also take upon Himself sin and take upon Himself the punishment of God for our sin. Jesus' deity is why He rose again, victor over sin and death. Jesus' deity is why He is now at the right hand of God with all the authority of the Godhead. Jesus' deity is why He will one day return on a cloud and rule in perfect judgment. So, Jesus' deity is why He can grant eternal life to all who believe in Him and why He will judge eternally those who don't. this leads us to a final response to the truth of Jesus deity third hope Jesus as God paid for sin so we can hope in the day that we are fully redeemed our spirits are redeemed now one day we will be like Jesus in our bodies our bodies will be redeemed they'll be eternal why because he is God and he grants us these new bodies and that's something we hope in We fix our eyes on Jesus as God. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He'll bring this all the way to completion. Yet everything has a man on earth yet with no sin. So we look to this Jesus, our God, as our divine Savior. And we hope in Him that He'll bring our faith to completion. And we hope in Him as we think about the eternal rule, His eternal rule. But a glorious truth that our Savior is not some random prophet not some wise old guru sitting under a Bodhi tree who's now incidentally burning in hell. He's not some polygamous cult leader, wacky times-in-times weirdo. Our Savior, Jesus, is God Himself, one in essence, one in substance, and we worship Him for it. We hope in Him, and we follow Him. Let's pray that we'll do this. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You that He has come to this earth, and though we cannot explain the Trinity fully, our brains are too small. It does make sense from a standpoint of truth and of Scripture. It does make sense with how he, You could provide redemption for us, and that is to come and be incarnate in the second person of the Trinity. And so we come and we worship You, We worship Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank and worship You as Spirit who comes and moves in our hearts to believe in Christ. For those who don't know Christ this morning, either here or watching, we pray You would convict them of sin. Call them to worship Jesus. We ask this in His name. Amen.